Morning. If you, if you know the uh, passage for today, if you got the email and not a visitor today, then you'll know I won't need a jacket. I'll be warm enough preaching through somewhat of a controversial topic today. So, uh, yeah, a perfect season. That's our title today. If you're a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are in the middle of a Genesis series. <laughs> middle, that's rich. We are on the front end of a Genesis series as we go through the book. And today we're in Genesis 3, 16 through 24, entitled A Perfect Season. Genesis 3, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. In painful labor you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband... And he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toll you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken... For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, Heavenly Father, and God, we, we, we do see that you are a just God. You take sin seriously, and so we should take sin seriously, Lord. And God, in this text, we also see that you are gracious, you're slow to anger, Lord. And your steadfast love truly does abound forever, God. As even though you banished humanity from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you provided a way to the tree of life in Revelation 22, Lord. So God, we, we ask for your understanding today of your text, of your scriptures. We pray for our hearts that ultimately we wouldn't conform to what the preacher said, but what to the word of God inspired by your spirit says, Lord. We ask this to the glory of Christ. Amen. So last week we spent time in verses 8 through 15 where Adam and Eve were called to account for their sin. God also pronounced judgment uh, upon Satan, upon the serpent, for his sin, tempting Eve. And if you remember, in Genesis 3.15, God first announced that the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, would eventually come and destroy the serpent. We know him as the Christ. Now, in today's passage, 
Adam and Eve face God's judgment for their role in Eden's transgression. And while death and exile from Eden are significant consequences, we should also note, we're going to note, that the dynamics of marriage and our labor is also going to be seriously affected by God's judgment as a result from their sin. And we'll see that that connection is a direct correlation with Adam and Eve's failure to abide in the roles that God gave them as husband and wife. Because of that, the consequences for their sin is going to overflow into every marital relationship, including ours. For full disclosure, disclosure, I'm nervous. <laughs> we'll get through it together. Full disclosure, I'm going to say some things today that many in our culture do not agree with, even a bit hostile toward. And as I spoke to one of our elders this morning, there's one way you can be for certain that you're going to have visitors at church preach on something controversial. And, it's, and they, it happens every single time. But I do realize that some of us, some of you here today may be troubled with certain teachings. Not, not just culture, that, that we can have trouble with certain teachings as well. So, as a pastoral note, if you find yourself becoming unsettled by something I say today, please know that while I say these things unashamedly, I do not mean to convey them ungraciously. I know I can get excited in the pulpit at times, and that can make it seem like I'm too aggressive about a certain teaching. And on the flip side of the coin, in my attempt to not appear too aggressive, I can make it appear as I'm uncompassionate. So if I come off with either view, too aggressive or uncompassionate this morning or any other way, I apologize. Because while I believe with my whole heart that I am entrusted to preach God's word truthfully and boldly, I also believe and have the conviction that that should never be confused with preaching the word of God arrogantly. So that is not my goal. So with that primer, point number one. Why I'm right and you're wrong. No, I'm just, I just needed to break the ice. I, I, did, I just needed to break the ice. <laughs> okay, it landed. We're good. All right. To the woman he said, verse 16, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. There's two major roles, two major purposes that God ordains for women at creation. They were to be helpers for their husbands, and they were to bear children, to be fruitful and multiply, reproduce. As we see from verse 16 here, each of those particular roles are affected in a negative way due to Eve's sin. And now her desires as a wife... And her pains as a mother 
bearing children is going to be impacted as well as every mother that comes after Eve and wife. This is one of those points that may be a bit controversial. If we allow the Bible to speak on its own terms, we should be able to safely affirm that women were created by God with those two purposes in mind. And because those purposes were designed by God, we can also affirm those aren't bad things. Those are wonderfully unique and designed for women to live to the glory of God. And there always still seems to be some sort of pushback towards these biblical mandates for women. And the, and, and, and the pushback is that these purposes or, or roles, it portrays women as weak because it doesn't allow them to think independently for themselves. It also appears to lessen their value in comparison to men. And so therefore, it's easy to become less interested in what the Bible has to say, and we become more captivated in regard to whatever society has to say. And once we turn our back on what the Word of God has to say about a matter, or what God has to say about something, the only place we have left to turn is to the world for its perspective. And the world is not short on opinions. But all that their opinions can do is provide man-made ideologies. And if we compare what God has to say about a matter to what the world has to say about it, we will typically find them at complete odds with one another, especially in a topic such as this. So to the woman, he said, childbearing. We're going to go through two, two specific things in women, with women, childbearing and submission. There it is. Childbearing. We'll start there. I will make pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth. And when God first created Eve, she's told, be fruitful, multiply. We can agree at that. And the ability to have babies was to be a wonderful experience. As her, as her and Adam would fill the earth with God's glory. But now, as a result of Eve's sin, what was designed to be a pure joy was now going to be severely painful. But we should note, it's the pain of the labor that's the curse and not the ability or, to, or decree to reproduce. The ability to have babies is still a blessing as God originally announced. The labor is the curse. Now, if you've had children, ladies, then you know that the joy of having the baby outweighs the pain of labor, at least after the delivery. I remember at our first birthing classes, the lady teaching, she continually reminded the expectant mothers that the severe pain that they'll experience during labor will instantly be reduced the moment that she meets her child for the first time. And three babies later, 
I can say that that has been true for every single one of them. Painful labors, painful pregnancies. But when the mother holds her baby and sees it, there's a reduction of pain. Now, I say that because the, the curse of painful labor, it's not meant to deter women from having babies. And it surely doesn't negate the decree God made for them to do so. And the Bible exalts the role of motherhood as high as you can possibly get for a woman. We could just analyze scripture, but I just want to take us to one passage, 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15. Paul says to Timothy, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed, but... She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and self-control. Now, there's a few different interpretations of what Paul is referring to here. She will be saved through childbearing, bearing children. I think it's safe to say, though, that the Bible puts a weighty emphasis on women having children. Is a woman saved by giving birth? No. That is a contradiction to salvation is by grace alone. We, we, we sang it this morning. There is one gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are saved by him alone. I'm suggesting instead what Paul is saying is that the fruit from a woman's faith, Christ is the root of her faith, but the fruit of that faith in Christ should result in having children. But the pain that comes from labor is going to be a true test of your faith. Now, of course, we know in reality that some women cannot have children, and that is by no means a fault of their own. If you're a woman who's unable to have a child, that is not your fault. And this, not speaking into your situation. So I don't want you to misunderstand and think you're less of a woman or that you're even unfaithful to God if you cannot have children. That's not the issue Paul is addressing with Timothy. He's not addressing the barren woman. Paul's addressing an issue that those who have accepted that submission to their husbands and bearing children are not primary roles that God mandated for women. That's what he's doing in 1 Timothy 2. And he tells his young apprentice to correct that teaching in the church. I don't think that should be too hard to understand because if you just look at the resistance of that teaching by our culture especially over these two issues, submission and having children, it, it, it shouldn't surprise us that it influences the church as well, men and women. I mean, society relentlessly tries to convince women that these two biblical teachings are misogynistic, some sort of dominating philosophy that men have come up with in order to uh, oppress women. 
we've taken the bait. And so it's, it's no surprise to find women in our culture, maybe even in, in our church, who refuse to be submissive to their husband, are repulsed by men, and are reluctant to have babies. Which brings us to our second point, submissiveness. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What does that mean? Does the desire that Moses is talking about for the wife or her husband, does that mean women are going to be so infatuated with their husbands they just can't take it? Just, just, I love you so much. Just completely head over heels. Ah, relationships start that way. But we know once they get married, that relationship does not continue it has to be worked on to develop those affections but you get the point and maybe that's what Moses means and it's, but I, I don't think so I don't think that's the case I think we get a little help actually from the meaning of the text in the following chapter when God speaks to Cain so we're in Genesis 3 today Genesis 4 next week then the Lord said to Cain why are you angry why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. To here in Genesis 4, we have the same phraseology that is used in our passage today. In chapter 4, Cain is told, right, God tells him, sin desires to have you, Cain. You must rule over it. You must, you must become its master. It desires to master you. You must master it. It's always a good time to quote John Owen. I think I did last week or week prior, who said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what God is saying to Cain. It, Sin wants to oppress you. It wants to make you its slave. And you must be sin's master. Now, if we think how Moses uses that phrase here in the context of Genesis 4, in God and Cain's interaction, if we understand it the same, that statement the same way and we apply that to Genesis 3, I think we get some clarity of what God is saying in this curse to Eve. Eve, you're going to want to rule over your husband, but that's not the way it will be. And it's going to be even worse than that than just having a desire to rule because your husband is going to rule over you. And I don't think in Genesis 3... The husband ruling over the wife is, is as God intended to be. I think that's got a negative connotation to it. Because a man being the leader of his family is not inherently sinful. The problem is men aren't going to lead their wives the way that we should. And instead, we're going to abuse our role. And, and even worse, men are going to to use the excuse of being a man to justify abusing their role. And 
And what God is saying is that as a consequence of Eve's sin, women are going to, they're going to, run, they're going to want to run their households. But the men who God gave that role, they're going to do it and they're going to abuse it. And if that's the case, if that's true, what is the woman's response? What's the response of the wife? Ephesians 5, 22, 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do the Lord. Just uh, husband and wives having gender roles as one the leader and one the helper doesn't mean that a woman has to submit to any man or every man. This is in reference to marriage. So let's not abuse that. It's not saying women submit to men in general. But, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The application, Paul says the way to combat the desire to rule, right, is to submit. And, 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 it, and it doesn't matter what gender you are, male or female, we know submission does not come naturally. And what does come naturally is insisting on our own way. And Paul says here in Ephesians, women, this should not be the case for those who are in Christ. And then he says, therefore, submit to your own husbands as if it were the Lord. Because ultimately, the command to wives to submit is from who? It's from the Lord. Sin makes marriage tough to the man. To the man, he said, I know my points aren't very creative, but just trying to be equal. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toll, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree which I commanded you must not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Last week for, uh, I think, Christmas, Christmas Eve service, we sang uh, the song, the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, which has the lyrics, far as the curse is found far as the curse is found. I couldn't help but thinking about it this week because the curse we were singing about last week says here that it was a result from Adam listening to his wife. So that's, uh, sorry, that was supposed to be funnier than it was. I laughed at it, but doesn't mean men should not listen to the wisdom or advice from their wives. I learned that repeatedly and Always for the good. I'm inclined to think that the reluctance for men to do so 
to listen to their wives, to take advice, to listen to counsel. I mean, maybe, maybe the woman is, the wife is called to submit, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't possess more wisdom in a situation or circumstance over you. So I'm inclined to think the reluctance for men to do so, to listen or take advice, is part of the domineering that Eve was told women would face. Your husband will rule over you. And with that said, Moses isn't referring to Adam's refusal, or taking sound advice, rather. He's referring to Adam listening to his wife and eating from the forbidden tree. That's primarily where sin affects us, men, especially as husbands. One of the greatest failures that we face as men is leading our families as God intends. I mean, not for nothing, but are women only reluctant to follow a man's leadership because of a sinful desire to do so? I, I'm not convinced that's the only reason. Uh, many women that I meet and talk to about this, they're not resentful at all about the Bible calling them to submit. In fact, they want nothing more than to have a husband who is a Christ-like man who they can submit to. Then if we take these women at their word, which I do, the issue is not that women are upset they have to submit. The issue is they have no Christ-like leadership to submit to. And so here we find our application for men. Back to Ephesians. Number one, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Number two, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one who ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body just as Christ does the church. So love your wife as Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her, the sacrificial love, and love your wife as your own body by loving her as if she were you, by providing for her spiritually, physically, emotionally, in every category you can imagine, as you would provide for yourself. John Chrysostom was very helpful this week as I read his book on marriage and family which my wife bought me for Christmas. So trying to accept my own preaching here. And he reminded me that there is no, and this is to the husbands, husbands, men, there's no suffering that you will ever face in serving your wife that will ever come close to the amount of suffering that Christ did for you. And I, that hit home. When I make a daily schedule, I make it my to-do list. And when it comes to consider my wife's needs and her schedule, I make that a if-I-have-time to-do list. And it's easy to do because I rationalize my needs above her. Well, this has to get done. Hers doesn't have to get done as much as mine needs to get done, and there we go.
I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I love preaching. One of the difficulties of preaching is the preparation, not just because it takes a long time, but because what you read has to filter through your own heart first before you proclaim it on Sunday morning. So I have to ask, do I love my wife as I love myself? I knew that answer before I even finished the question. No. And and I think in God's grace, in in that moment, something dawned on me. And, and, And not just specifically about the husband's heart or my own heart, but just as... In, in marriages in general, and it's from something Paul says to the Ephesians, which he, he continues to go on, and Paul actually takes this from Genesis 2, he quotes it from Genesis 2, in Ephesians 5.31, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and, and here, and the two will become one flesh. And, 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 and what I realized was the reason it's difficult for a wife to submit to her husband to, to, to see herself as, as his helper with the same goal. And, and, and the reason it's difficult for a man to love his wife like Christ loved the church is because neither of them are living their lives in the reality that they're one flesh. It's, it's not a physical reality. It's a spiritual one. Although, weirdly enough, sometimes when, when people are married for a long enough time, you've heard they begin to look like each other, right? Now, you hear that about pets, too, but you also hear it about husbands and wives, so we're going to stick with spiritual one, but that's a fun lunch conversation. You see, but if, if husbands and wives viewed what they did as if they were if what, they, if what they were doing for themselves is if they were doing it or, or doing it for the other person, as they were doing it for themselves, they were, the marriages would live in great harmony. Here's why our marriages aren't, though. Because both of us view ourselves as independent from one another. We don't view the other person as if they are us and we are them. And due to this independent mindset, the, the, the wife has a problem submitting because it's not what she thinks is best for her. And the husband has a problem putting his wife's needs first because it's not what he thinks is best for him. And, and yet... I already know what you're thinking. Each one of you is thinking that that whatever you're doing or want to be done is what's best for your family. So you're not being self-centered when I'm like, no, this is what's best for our family. No, this is what's best for you. Because the Bible doesn't say that that is the way a marriage should work in harmony. We should do what I want because that's just what's best for... It's the... Or, we, or I don't need to serve my wife because that's what's best for our, our family. The Bible says no. No, that's, that's not what's best for your family. What's best for your family and your marriage is to view the other person as yourself. And to live your lives in that reality. In the light of that reality. You're united, loved ones. If you're married, 
And this marital union even supersedes the command of loving our neighbor as ourself. Because while the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, here, it says, the other person you're married to is yourself. It's not a comparison. It's a union. And it just dawned on me that, okay, this is how I should be. This is how we should be viewing it as one. This is what Paul is saying. Laying down my life for my wife and treating her as myself is, 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 is what's best for me. And it is what's best for the family. That's, we need to move on. All right, so because of Adam's sin... The curse is hard labor and death. <laughs> and that's not about marriage. Okay? So work itself is not a bad thing. Work was established before sin. Work is good. And we will work in the new earth once Christ returns. So work isn't bad. It's the difficult, meaningless, relentless labor that is the curse. What's funny though, that we read it, right? It's <laughs> painful tolls the curse, and, and yet sin, here's how, de- how deceitful sin is. What, what humanity has done has taken the curse of relentless, meaningless, difficult work and turned it into the centerpiece of who we are and our identities. We, we've become a people and just the broader portion of society who believes that work should take priority over everything else. And that isn't isolated to the culture because work is an idol for the church too. I can name two ways that the church idolizes work just off the bat. We prioritize work over going to worship on the Lord's day. Not everyone, but some do. And we prioritize work over our families. For what? Why is relentless, meaningless work painful to all? Why do we do it? Why do we let that become the centerpiece of our life? Is it truly fulfilling you? Um. I would say no. Ecclesiastes 2. (laughs) I love how it starts off in verse 17 in the context of work. He says, so I hated life. (laughs) It must have been Monday morning. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it's meaningless of chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun. Let's talk about possessions he worked for. Because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toll into which I poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. (laughs) So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then they must leave it all. All they own to another who is not told for it. 
This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all? Here we go. Verse 20. What do people get for all the toll and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Does their work keep you up at night? I mean, if we take Ecclesiastes, what a fulfilling life. We work our entire lives to build upon an earthly fortune so that one day we can die and give all of that wealth to a fool. Now, we can't escape the necessity to work, but we can prioritize what we are working toward. This this is our application. I should ask ourselves, are we working relentlessly for earthly treasure where the moth and rust collect? Or are we laboring for heavenly treasure that doesn't have an expiration date? Maybe you don't know the difference, and we're going to have to save that one for another day. We, we need to conclude with this final point. It's a weird transition from marriage to work. And now, salvation. Enter Eden through Christ. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. He drove the man out, and he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and the flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. There's an inescapable truth from this past, well, from from these verses here. That's that sin separates us from God. We teach our children that very early, but we, this is why. Why do we teach our kids sin separates you from God? Because it does and it did. And the separation between God and those made in his image began right here. The moment Adam and Eve were banished from Eden. It's a very valuable lesson for us because it shows us the, consul, the, the, the consequential impact of just one sin. Just one. It's also a, it's a helpful rebuke to any of us who try to identify or when we try to identify as self-righteous. Because even if we think we're perfect or righteous on our own, Romans 3 says, no, you're not. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. And And even if it was only once, you're still disqualified from eternal life in Eden. One sin. That's it. I've learned, here's some more, advice I've taken from my wife, I've learned not to troll on social media over religious or political posts. It never ends well. (laughs) 
But when it comes to college football, though, I love to watch the world burn. And recently, I got myself involved in a Facebook chat about my favorite team, Ohio State, going 11-1 and this season. Half of the group said that 11-1 and was a successful season and something to be proud of. The other half, including myself, said it was not a successful season. I'll let you decide. The point is, while 11-1 and may be good enough for a football season to be a success, in regard to your standing before God, 11-1 and is not good enough. You see, in order to have a clean record, you must have a perfect season. 11-1 and is great. It's not good. It's not good enough. Some of us have better resumes, but none of us have undefeated records. I'm talking about humans, not football teams right now. By the grace of God, though, and in Christ, we do have a perfect season. The gospel of Jesus provides a perfect season. What we see foreshadowed in Eden is what becomes realized in Jesus and in the gospel. And this is where we'll conclude here. The foreshadowing is in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You see, the garments God clothed them with was from a sacrificed animal. And that is important to understand because throughout the rest of Scripture, throughout the rest of the Bible, we learn that blood sacrifices are ordered or are required in order to cleanse and decontaminate people in order to bring them into fellowship with God. And the ultimate demonstration of that is found in the sacrifice of Jesus, our Passover lamb. Because only the blood of Jesus is able to accomplish what the blood of bulls and goats was never able to do. See, the blood of Jesus turns our 11-1 season, or like our 2-9 season, into a perfect season. And, 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 and that alone is able to provide us access to God fellowship with God, to reconcile what has been separated and broken by sin. Do you want to be in the garden? Do you want to walk with God, our Savior, in the garden? And you must enter through Christ. That He alone is the way into Eden. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, you know what your word is intended to do, Lord, and we will entrust your word to your work, knowing that it's intention for us, for the church. Well, for one, it calls us out of darkness. It reveals blind spots in our life. It calls us to repent. It calls us to, 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 to flee from sin, even sinful things that we believe. It calls us to, to stop believing and start believing what you say and to trust what you say. And that is what our faith is based upon. 
and intends us to conform us more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we need help with that because even, even if culture is in opposition in their marriages or, or in what a woman or a wife or a husband or a male is supposed to be, we're intended to look like your son, Jesus Christ. And we need help doing that. And, and the church, we don't do that perfectly either, Lord. Even having your word and studying it day in, day out, week in, week out, we still get things wrong. So we ask for grace. We ask for your grace, Lord, to help us to live as a Christ-centered community delighting in God. Lord, only your spirit and your work and your work can conform us into that. Lord, we ask this to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.